Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. One of the notes we ended on in our previous episode on Bruno Taut was the hero of Wagner's Tannhäuser. He yearns to be at home with his beloved Elizabeth, but magic, his own desires, and a great deal of thunderous noise keep him trapped underground, entranced by a chthonic Venus. If he stays, then he eternally abandons what he loves. If he goes home, however, he courts scornful rejection by the goddess. Of course, the opera is a romantic fantasy, so the hero goes home and wins a battle of the bands to regain his sweetheart's favor. Insert Nietzsche gagging here. But the story of Tannhäuser becomes instructive in that the 19th century sentiment of the heroic is the opposite of the machine ethics that were seized upon by the counter-expressionist strands in modernism that took hold after the Great War. The coal, fire, and electricity of the Venusberg were finally surrendered to in the 1920s. If anything, Elizabeth was pulled under with Tannhäuser, shaved legs, bobbed hair, and all. Like our Wagnerian hero, Bruno Taut was pinned down by a kind of twilight, but before shovel hit soil, he seemed glad about it rather than embattled, and determined to understand or at least celebrate how the collision of the primal and the artificial could transform the world and mankind with it. Before continuing, we'd like to thank our listener Vlad for writing in with some insightful comments on our recent interview with Kent Bloomer. His remark that modern man has more in common with primitive man than is commonly acknowledged is very well taken, especially in the light of Tout's imagined cave architecture. It is a widely held belief that Freud left us the legacy of an eternal primal through the unconscious, and that this aspect of identity can only be elided at one's peril. But there's another way in which the primitive becomes insinuated in the modern. The aperiodic, though cyclical, stripping of the ego when faced with the expanse of drastically unfamiliar dynamics. To rephrase the old Chinese curse, it is always the primitive man who lives in interesting times. By logic, it must follow that, such as the primal is new, then the new is first. It was with the new in retrospect that medieval churches became gothic to the Enlightenment. Appalachian trailblazers rarely bathed, 
and we call pioneering computers prehistoric. So while it's true that change is constant, not all change is created equal. Death and taxes are not rape and pillage. The Paleolithic underwent tens of thousands of years without appreciably evolving tools. Drastic climate swings during the interglacials almost wiped our ancestors out, but also spurred the great human migrations that coincided with the Upper Paleolithic's birth of art and the acceleration that some argue is ongoing up until this day. More recent catastrophes, such as the Black Death, invasion by the Mongols, and the Crusades, all striking within 250 years of each other, as compared to the so-called Age of Revolution we're presumably still immersed in, tore Western Europe apart and lethally injured classical Islam. It is not to praise such dreadful times to say it, but humanity may not be all that naturally innovative. It is crisis, dynamic necessity, that's the wet nurse of invention. We change habits mostly when compelled to, and the gains in innovation we are seeing now are owed less to our native brilliance than to our responding to increasingly life-threatening environmental changes. This rapidity renders all of us primitives. So what happens when the innovation engine is driven by humans, as happened during the periodic empire shifts of the Bronze Age collapse, the fall of Rome, and the aforementioned High Middle Ages. We have seen that this pitch of historical pressure acts like an ascending foothill, setting you down hard, but taking you higher in time. What happens when the disruption becomes more energetic, more or less sustainably and systematically human-driven? as with the Golden Triangle of African slavery or munitions bankers during World War I. You end up with a hockey stick chart. And the more a population or a commodity value or, indeed, innovation itself is sharply ascendant, the higher the risk for acute correction. At that point, a new phase of distinct adaptation is called for. Of course, not all innovation is polemic, but how symbiotic can something be for which the favorite cognomen is disruptive? We've been granted a historical reprieve we overlook too easily. After the world wars, the disruptive change that futurism had so proudly hectored was at least seen for the mess it was, 
and we are still apt to kid ourselves that everything new is for the better these days, though this is hardly the case. So what is to be done? No avant-garde can any more sustain that conformity whose chief characteristic is non-conformism. Do we act like hippies and drop out, tune in and go farm? That might help. But for everyone to do so might require a mass extermination. Dadaists wail, postmodernists pose, contort, and complain. Yet we contend that Tout, bathed in his primal twilight, outlined a different approach. And so we've come full circle to the idea of embracing rather than struggling that we opened our episode with. Although Tout's alpine architecture can be read as fantasy, its driving force is empathy. For so many decades, up to the 20s, and even beyond into our own time, to provoke the bourgeoisie was the delight of architects and artists wishing to stay relevant. This antagonistic stance is of a piece with the fetishization of disruption that we know so well. Of course, there comes a point in which disruption breaks into a self-encircling firing squad. When rates of change reach a turbulent fever pitch, injecting oppositional energy into the system only helps destabilize it. Such moments of rapid turnover are when and why any illusions of strict mind-body or self-other dualism must be cast aside. Acknowledging this is the fulcrum of the new primal technique for survival. And more than a philosophic or poetic moral system, this shift in stance from opposition to empathy had a direct impact on Tout's work. Matthias Schirin writes that Tout was able to call the poet and novelist Schirbart the true architect of Alpine architecture only because the principle of empathy with an organic universal process had previously been nobilitated as an eminently artistic, if not scientific, principle. Being a true expressionist, Tout would start with poetry and work outwards from there. His works, however, both the imaginary and the built, demonstrate that, insofar as it is architecture, this inner work cannot remain internal, as it did for Kandinsky, or remain glued to the subjective, as the Neue Sachlichkeit and De Stil claimed was the case 
with, say, itin or clay. With architecture, one must build. Aside from the small, though spectacular, glass pavilion, of which London's Gherkin skyscraper is but a pale homage, Tout's most notable project was the Hufeisensiedlung, begun in 1925. The name means horseshoe estate, and it consists of middle-class townhouses built on what was then the outskirts of Berlin, just outside the subway's reach. It is named for the distinctive central feature of a curved set of residences wrapped around a pond and well-scaled park. Great care was taken to build with unique, albeit coherent, shapes and colors. And, notably for affordable housing, the project purposefully strove to avoid cutting costs on materials whenever possible. Speaking from the experience of a personal visit, the Hufeisensiedlung has a staying power that stands in favorable contrast to the once-gleaming high-modernist environs of the Siemensstadt buildings, where uniformity, precision, and efficiency were highly prized. Tout's work showed effective empathy with the land and its inhabitants alike. Now, nearly a century later, this distinction in approach shows a marked contrast with other buildings of the time. The empathy towards the others and the surroundings is, in a sense, the additional element that drove Tout's work beyond the usually subjective or intersubjective confines of expressionism and into a distinct type of new objectivity that architecture as a whole is barely starting to explore. But although the later 20th century would pick up on this brand of scientific feeling, Tout was eventually swept away by a tide of prefabrication, white porcelain, and subway tiles. And the stage for this retreat from feeling into rudimentary machine efficiency and adversarial innovation came precisely where so many architects find friction. In the interaction with clients. Though Tout began with the best of intentions, he eventually betrayed his earlier instincts. One year before ground was broken for the Siedlung in Berlin, Tout published a book very different from Alpine architecture called The New Home, Woman as Creator, in which he argues that young, inexperienced women are the ones who hold back progress. Even as his empathy still draws him to the centrality of this domestic feeling that he wished to overcome. 
The vital influence the woman's change of mind in this modern direction exerts on the collective condition of the people can by no means be valued too highly, because in order to even begin to build better homes, the woman must emphatically demand them. Tout wanted to tell women how to be different, so that they could choose to be free in the homes he designed for them. Trapped in this stubborn paradox, his difficulty in addressing the needs of individual woman was a far cry from the goddess of nature that tout as an atom within her adorned. The architect again ensnared. The Venus of the mountain had her revenge. But such knots were soon untied, if not by tout. Projects like the Frankfurt Kitchen, where the benefits of user feedback workplace optimization were applied to the tasks of women at home, would soon be developed by the likes of Margaret Schüttel-Holzky and Ernst May. And as much as that particular synthesis of empathy and innovation tilted to the side of factory sensibility, it was nonetheless a synthesis, one we will be remembering as our story continues further into the 20th century. And Lapsus Lima itself is being reworked. As of March 31st, it will be closing its doors in order to restructure and take on a new shape or two. While Monica and Alonzo will continue to lead Lapsus Lima and the blog, after a short break, I will be leaving to continue this podcast at fundamentalprocess.com. These Lapsus Lima podcast episodes, which at this point wrap up with this third and final episode on Bruno Tout and the preceding two-part interview with Dr. Kent Bloomer, will be archived at the new Fundamental Process site in iTunes and at lapsuslima.com for your future reference. Our Patreon page remains open and is being transferred to the name and content of the Fundamental Process. Thank you for the patronage and friendship you've provided us with in these past years. On behalf of Monica, Alonzo, and David, thank you for listening. <laughs>